Good morning. So I, as most of you know, I did not, um, wasn't raised in a small church. We were raised spiritually in a very large church. And one of the things that I've learned being here, though, is the joy of singing to one another. I just felt that this morning in a new way. Uh, In a very large church, there's a lot of singing. And don't get me wrong, the music is phenomenal. The performance, the volume, the emotions are lifting. But uh, for 18 years uh, or longer until I got here, I don't think I ever really appreciated the fact of singing in Christ alone to one another. So I I say that to us to encourage us, but I also say that to thank you. Um, So this morning we are going to continue in our Christmas or Advent series. Now, again, I was not raised in a home that had any emphasis on Advent other than the little calendar that had the neat little chocolates underneath it. Um, Even in the megachurch that we were in, Advent was not that big of a deal. A couple of years ago, I actually had to look up the term Advent. And in all confession in this sermon, I had to relook up the definition of Advent. The definition is that I found the coming of a notable person or event. The coming of a notable, notable person or event. Now, we know that Webster's Dictionary and all that have to kind of play down. But we as believers, Advent is a time in which we celebrate the very God, sovereign, holy, perfect, righteous, patient, who came down to earth to seek and save the lost. I think we'd call that a notable event. And this was Jesus who came, quite the notable person. Advent is a time in which we remember that. Advent, though, is also a time that we look forward to another very notable event and when Jesus Christ is going to return. So today, as we continue in our Advent series, in the back of our minds, we are celebrating something that has occurred, and we are celebrating something that will come. Now, in my investigation on the web of the definition of Advent, I came across another article, which is a little pondering to me, but the title was actually, Yes, Baptists Can Celebrate Advent. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Let us pray. No. um, I'm not sure why that is, or I'm sure that we don't want to lean too far to the traditional liturgical side on one side, but let us be encouraged as Baptists that we can actually uh, celebrate the coming of Christ and the return of Christ together. Last week, Timothy brought us through a series from Scripture on hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we proclaim. 
We were challenged by God's word that hope is not centered on our circumstances, but in the midst of. We're going to see a very similar theme today in peace. So I just want to start us off with the main idea. As believers, our peace is not founded upon the absence of something, but the presence of someone. We do not have peace based upon the removal of trouble or conflict, but rather we have peace in the midst of it. Our peace has a name, Jesus. Today, you're probably not going to hear a whole lot of things that are new. But Paul and Peter tell us to stir one another up by reminder as we go forward. So we're, where are we going to travel today? We're going to travel a couple of places. Number one, we're going to look at some foundational things about peace from Scripture. Then we're going to look at the promises of peace in Scripture. And then our response. So what is peace? Well, if you're like me, you go to the ultimate source of all definitions. Google. Freedom from disturbance and tranquility. Webster. Harmony in personal relations. State of tranquility. Oh, and this one's my favorite. Cambridge. Calm and quiet. Freedom from worry or annoyance. That is the parent's dream. <laughs> now, I'm sure that you don't identify with this, but as you're driving here and it's raining, and once again in the wintertime you forgot to change your windshield wipers, so that as you're just driving in peace and contemplating the sermon, and all of a sudden you turn your windshield wipers on, and <laughs> it just kind of goes like that and disturbs everything. Freedom from annoyance. Now, I'm not going to say those words are actually wrong, but I find them to be woefully incomplete. Scripture gives us other words that we see. The Old Testament, shalom, so much more than the absence of annoyance. Completeness, wholeness, health, balance, tranquility, it is all-encompassing. The New Testament equivalent, Irene, comes and has the same meaning, but it adds a little bit that it is also from the verb to join or bind together that which has been separated. Again, not the absence of something. Notice completeness, wholeness. You can't help but look at that definition and where does it take you? It takes you to the very character of God. Completeness. Wholeness. In Acts chapter 17, Paul writes, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Completeness. God visited Gideon in Judges chapter 6. 
the Lord says to him, Peace to you, do not be afraid, for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it Jehovah Shalom. Now we see in a couple of places, 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 13, 2 Thessalonians 3, that they all start out with this phrase, Now may the God of peace... Ephesians 2.14, for he is our peace. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that would lie nor change like the son of man, but what he says he does, what he promises, what he fulfills. The definite peace originates from the very character of God. Complete, whole. The Trinity we do not see Jesus doing anything contrary to the Father. We do not see conflict between the Holy Spirit that I don't want to testify about Jesus. We see, not, we see complete peace and wholeness in the very Trinity of God. Again, reminder, our peace as believers is not based upon the absence of something, but on someone Peace was also given to us as a gift. Colby read earlier Luke 2. In this day, the city of David, whose Christ the Lord will be given to you. Peace is a gift. It's not something we can manufacture, that's for sure. Isaiah 9 says the same thing. For us, to us a child is born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And of the increase in his government and peace, there will be no end. So now let's turn to our main passage. If you would, please turn with me to John chapter 14. Let's see what John records Jesus saying. John chapter 14, going to read verses 25 through 27. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now we have to Step back into the context of that passage. So for those of us in discipleship groups studying John, we know that chapters 13 through 21, it's called the book of glory. It is the time where Jesus has moved on from walking amongst the people to now he's focused on his disciples, ultimately his death, resurrection, and ascension to glory. In chapter 13, he and the disciples have a very intimate dinner. He washes their feet. He teaches them about love. And then chapter 14, Philip has the audacity. He says, please show us the Father. And Jesus says, how long have you been with me, Philip? And then, and then Jesus drops the proverbial bomb. That, oh, by the way, I'm leaving you. And then he says, I'm giving you the helper, the Holy Spirit. Peace, I leave with you. 
Now, can you imagine anybody else saying that? So at the end of the service, as I step down from my sermon, I will say to you all, peace, I, my peace I leave with you, and I peace I give to you. There's nothing there. I have none of that myself to give. Leaving and giving. I think in this context, you have to take into account that this is not some present under the tree that Christ is leaving. In this context, he's calling upon the Father to leave the Holy Spirit, his very nature as part of the Trinity with us. Peace I leave you. It's not just something he discarded after three years. And then he says, my peace I give you. There's a corollary passage in John chapter 15 in the vine and the branches and Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. It is Jesus' peace that he possesses as part of the Trinity that is not lacking. We are in Christ. He's inviting us into this peace that is his. We are one with Christ. We died and were raised with him. Jesus' peace that he's had since the beginning of time is the peace that he's given to us. Our peace has a name, not just an absence of something. Jesus goes on to say, my peace I give to you not as the world gives. Not as the world gives, I give to you. Now, I think in that sentence, now I'm not an English major, but I know that there's the assumption that the peace is given is not as the world has peace, and it's not the means by which the world gives peace that's the same. So what and how does the world give? So I came up with three things. One, it's circumstantial. The peace that we receive from the world, and by the way, we do receive peace from the world. Police, firemen, the FDIC, health insurance. But it's all circumstantial, based upon circumstances. Its primarily intent is to prevent or mitigate bad things from happening. It is aimed at the symptom, not the root. world gives peace inconsistently very fickle, based upon different standards of what peace is, what definitions we use, who says it, who gives it. And finally, it's very temporary. As we studied last week in Ecclesiastes, all this stuff under the sun is temporary. It's a vapor. Circumstances change. Definitions of what we thought were stable, marriage, and so on, changes. It's very temporary. Now, as an IT guy, I tend to look at the world in the sense that the peace that the world gives is based upon process and procedures. I love process and procedures. They're stable. 
You start here, you end up there, you do these five things, and it all comes about. I can see the engineers smiling in the crowd. Biblical peace is a person and promises. As a matter of fact, we know that it's not circumstantial because Jesus Christ himself said, you will always have poor. You will have suffering. John 16, says, in the world you will have tribulation, suffering, but don't worry, I've, take, I've overcome the world. Jesus even said, for those of us who follow him, we will suffer. So how does Jesus give it? Well, obviously, it's the antithesis of all those things that we talked about. But a couple other points. The word stingy can never be applied to the Lord. He gives abundantly. The peace we have is abundant, not just barely squeaking by. It is abundant. It's an extension of his relationship with us. Worldly peace really doesn't take into consideration us whatsoever, has no care for us. And again, it's not based upon any circumstance, but it's in spite of. Why does Jesus give us peace? Well, it's right up there. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Take heart. Be courageous. But again, it's based upon him. I have overcome the world. It is my peace I give you. So we need to ask the question, how do we receive this peace? Second Peter 1, 2 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peace is multiplied as we know Jesus. Catch us, not about Jesus, but as we know Jesus. Our knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't separate peace and faith. And finally, Isaiah 26, 3. You keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Pastor Timothy has continually pointed us to this thing about setting our minds upon Christ and the things above. So what are the promises that come as part of the statement, my peace, I give you? There are three, probably lots more. We have peace with God. We have peace with others. And we have inner peace. Now note, these are promises that we actually have, 
And these are promises that we struggle with and sometimes don't live out. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has made us just. He has made us righteous. He has stamped us because of Christ. And we have peace with God. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more has he reconciled us? Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Eternally, we know that if we look in Revelation, it tells us that we will actually be with this peace and there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. We have peace with God. Now, there's a, there's a presupposition underneath there. There's a presupposition that we need peace with God. We as humans, again, as reminders, our nature is by default one of already being condemned. By default, we are on a train set for a destination apart from God for eternity. We are by default in darkness. And yet Jesus came to rescue us and take us out of the darkness and into the domain of light. And because of that, we can have peace with our God, the creator of all things, sovereign one. Because of that, and because he is our peace, we have peace with others in the church. Now, as I said, let's not confuse the promise that we have peace with the fact of how we live that out. In Ephesians 2, he talks about bringing together two into one, the Jews and the Gentiles in this particular case. We were both reconciled to God. We have this in common. It was preached to us, those who are far off and those who are near. For through him, we both have access into one spirit to the Father. Colossians 3 says... Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. I think, I, I know for myself that I often, when I think about peace, I often think about it as such an individualistic thing. I've got peace with God. Isn't that great? I've got peace. We, as a body of believers, of the people of Christ, we are in Jesus Together as a body, we have peace together. We are unified in him. I believe that peace and the church are intrinsically linked. Finally, 
it says peace with myself, but I'm not really sure I like that phrase. I'm at peace with myself. I just, but there is this truth that we have an inner peace that God has given us. Why? Because his Holy Spirit lives in us. So how does the Holy Spirit live in us and we don't have peace? That is so diametrically opposed. It's such an oxymoron that you can't even define it that way. We have inner peace because we have assurance. He's told us he will never leave us nor forsake us. Romans 8, 34-39 tells us that nothing, nakedness, famine, life, death, wars, will separate us from the love of God. Second Peter says, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness to our knowledge of him. And then we sang this morning, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and strivings cease. John 14 and John 16, don't let your hearts be troubled, but take heart. My peace I give you. Philippians 4 talks about the promise that we know so well in this one that if we bring everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard. It's a promise. My reality sometimes though is so different. How often do I play the what-if games? And I'm sure I'm the only one that does this. My peace, I leave you. But what if the money runs out? My peace, I leave with you. But what if people don't like me? What if I fail? What if I'm wrong? No, no, that's a promise. My peace I give to you. Our peace has a name. So how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this peace, this person, this promise that we have? Now, there's probably a lot of ways. And if you've been, as I've been and experienced sermons, let's talk about how we interact better as people. And I can give you some practical ways of, you know, make sure you listen first, make sure you pay attention. I'm not sure why, but those are not the things that the Lord laid on my heart to share. Three things. Let the peace of Christ rule, pursue peace, and be a peacemaker. Colossians 3, 14 and 15. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the peace of Christ rule. This word let and the word rule are the same. 
They come from the word to mean to direct or to control. It even has a sense of to arbitrate or umpire. The personal application here is to let the peace of Christ rule and to direct your lives. This has an assumption behind it that we don't do this naturally with other people or with myself. Let the peace of Christ rule. Arbitrate. Think rightly. Believe in who Jesus is and what he has done. Let the peace of Christ rule. Now, I don't know about you, but I often have those conflicting conversations with that person next to me in the car who is really not there and causes me to spin up. And I have ideas, oh, I should really do this, and no, I shouldn't do that. Oh, I really want to give my peace of mind to that guy. And then I don't, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm not letting the peace of Christ rule. I'm not actually arbitrating my own thoughts. I'm allowing my thoughts to go down a very selfish way rather than letting the peace that comes from Jesus to arbitrate and rule my heart. Secondly, pursue peace. Now, I'm not sure about you, but a lot of times I think of peace as passive. It's the absence of violence. I tend to when there is conflict or uncomfortableness, I kind of like to just say, oh, it needs time. And I'm not saying that sometimes conflict and pain and suffering don't need time to resolve, but I tend to just kind of put it there and let's not discuss it or anything. It's kind of like I'm hoping that when I throw a rock into a body of water, it makes the ripples, and I'm just going to kind of let those ripples just kind of fade. And I'm going to ignore the topic. And I'm going to hope that peace comes. That conflict that I have with either an individual or with myself or with God, I'm just going to, if I just don't touch it, don't, don't stir that up, it's going to be better. I don't think Scripture allows for that. It actually tells us to pursue peace. Romans 12, specifically as it relates to other people, that we are to live peaceably amongst others. Psalm 34, 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The understanding there is it sometimes is very difficult and we need to look for it and to pursue it. Romans 14, so then let us pursue what makes for peace. 2 Corinthians 13, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Pursue peace. That means you got to get into it. That means you have to address it. That means you have to, something I really don't do well, and that is I have to think about it. 
I have to interject. I have to love. I have to get into a place where it's very uncomfortable. Pursue it. It's not just going to happen on our own. And finally, be a peacemaker. Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. I think it would be the sons of God. Now we know in our fairly exhaustive study on the Beatitudes, there actually I think was a sermon just on this verse. So I'm going to pull that up now and we're going to listen for the next two hours on that. If you all recall, the Beatitudes were not the description of things that we need to do to become. But rather, as the children of God, we are peacemakers. This is what characterizes believers. We are peacemakers. We are to step in between people or objects that are not being at peace. We represent the very God, the very King, the very peace who has a name that has come down. And we are to be peacemakers. Paul has it said a little differently with a little more emphasis. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And then he says, we implore. If you, if you could write a sentence in English that had four exclamation points at the beginning of that and four at the end of it, that's what he's saying. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I believe Paul, in this case, is recounting non-believers becoming Christians, that they need to be reconciled. So I believe he's speaking to non-believers. But one can't help that Paul is writing this letter to the church as well. And he's imploring us to be reconciled with God. Now remember, the promises that we have are things that we have already we are reconciled because of Christ. There's nothing else we can do. We are reconciled to God through Christ. But as we know, relationally, we are not always reconciled with God. It's why we have a prayer of confession and lament, realizing and acknowledging our sin before Him. Implore each other to be reconciled with God. I had to ask myself, am I, am I really doing this? Or am I kind of just letting that happen and hope that, uh, you know, eventually somebody else is going to go talk to my neighbor. God is sovereign. He's totally in control. I'm just going to kind of let that sit. And I'm not going to implore them to be reconciled to God. I see my brother and sister who maybe they're going through a tough time or maybe like us all have at some time in our life just struggled with disobedience and the ability to stop looking at self and look at God. Do I come along and implore them to be reconciled to God? 
peace comes through reconciliation. We have peace with the Almighty God because of the reconciliation that is a result of Christ dying on the cross. We are reconciled. I hate for the, the chant that was there of no peace, no reconciliation, no reconciliation, no peace. So I pray that as we think about peace is not the absence of something, but it is the presence of Jesus. It is the presence of the one that has a name that we would celebrate the peace that we have in Christ. There is no peace without reconciliation. All other attempts at bringing true peace are cheap substitutes at best and false hope at worst. God himself sent his son, the prince of peace, the word who was in the beginning, who was God, to become flesh, to seek, and to save the lost, to reconcile and bring peace both now and forever. Peace has a name. Church, I pray that we would live it. I pray that we would worship. I pray that we would adore him. He alone is our peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. your source of truth, your source of light, your source of love. Thank you for your son bringing us peace. Who is our peace? Lord, forgive us when we seek peace elsewhere in other people and other things. But thank you that you are at work in our lives in the midst of circumstances. God, well up within us a joy and a peace coming from the very person and character of yourself. You are our God and our peace. Pray that our hearts and our minds would rejoice in you and implore others to enjoy that peace as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen.